This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 405th episode, we have an interview with Evan Johnson Ransom. We have Dinosaur of the Day UNESCO Ceratops. And we have a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, as always, we like to thank some of our patrons because they're the main force keeping I Know Dino streaming all over the interwebs. And this week, we'd like to thank Joey, Dennis Saltasaurus, Albertosaurus, Elvie, Evelyn and Frankie, Jurassic Jim, Cosmic Parasaur, Daniel McGill, Jackson Crawford, and Kelly. Yes, thank you so much to all of our patrons. As Garrett mentioned, you're the reason we're able to keep the show going. So thank you. And without further ado, we're going to get on to our interview with Evan Johnson Ransom. But of course, we have an extended version of this interview. So if you're interested in hearing way more, details about his work, then be sure to check out the extended version in your premium content feed. We're joined this week by Evan Johnson Ransom, who's a PhD student at the Ross Lab and Sereno Lab at the University of Chicago, studying neck kinematics and feeding behavior of spinosaurids. He's a theropod enthusiast and recently defended his thesis at the School of Biomedical Sciences at Oklahoma State University about the biomechanical performance of tyrannosauroid skulls and implications for theropod dinosaur feeding. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, for listeners, if Evan's name sounds familiar, we interviewed him back in episode 293. I guess that's over 100 episodes, so it must be over two years ago. Oh, yeah. doesn't seem that long. It doesn't, no. (laughs) (laughs) Just seemed like last year. Yeah, Yeah, it does. (laughs) Yeah, congrats on your PhD program and successfully defending your master's thesis. Thank you very much. We had a good time getting to watch you defend your thesis. Cause yeah, that was cool. That was Yeah, that's the first time Thank I you. think we've seen that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. I think one of the best parts about Zoom is that we can basically like invite people that can come in person and also virtually too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I think, did you end up getting more questions, do you think, than you normally would have gotten since it was virtual? Hmm, good question. I guess you've only done it I once. Feel like, <laughs> so. Actually, I kind of feel like I got a lot more questions, though, because this actually had like a larger audience, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a lot. It's, I feel like on Zoom, there were like 50 or maybe even 100 people. There were a lot of people mm-hmm. watching. <laughs> oh, yes. There was like almost. Yeah, I actually remember someone saying like there was almost up to like 100 people on that Zoom meeting. So that was nice. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's how you know you're doing interesting research when that many people want to join to watch you defend a thesis. (laughs) But speaking of, because I know you're in the process of getting your thesis published, can you tell us a little bit about it? 
again? <laughs> yes, of course. So initially, we were going to publish it in just one big chunk, but there was like a lot of details entailing the thesis. So we're going to be spinning it up into two or maybe three chapters, but the first two I'm actually excited to be working on. Mm-hmm. The first thesis chapter is going to be looking at 2D FEA models of tyrannosauroids and comparing that with non-tyrannosaurid theropods, such as Allosaurus, Baryonyx, Carnotaurus, and even Coelophysis. Hmm. And then the second chapter will be looking at the 3D cranial models of T-Rex at various ontogenic stages. So baby, subadult, and adult. Nice. Cool. And how much of that research have you done so far? Is it like you've done most of it and now you just need to write it up or is there still a lot of work to be done? I've actually was able to complete a large chunk of the thesis chapter. So everything that was conducted last year was basically recycled, but had to be tweaked, however, for the thesis publications. Mm. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> The other day, I read through a list of requirements for publishing a paper. And the list of requirements is like 20 or 30 pages long because it's all like the formatting and all the details you need and then how mm-hmm. you need to back it up and then how everything needs to be written. It seems like quite a process. (laughs) Oh, yes, it is definitely a process. And sometimes, depending on the journal articles, you want to make sure like you are, they have to abide by certain guidelines, however, too, such as margins, um, figures, not to mention the amount of figures, too, which Mm. is always the hard part because I'm always like, okay, which figures do I want to include or not include? Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So they have a maximum number of figures usually? Oh, yes, usually, because usually it kind of depends up to like maybe 30 for some, but I have to double check that though too. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there are definitely some journals, like I feel like PLOS One, you'll get a ton of pictures and then something like Nature, it's so short that maybe one Mm. or two pictures is usually it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But I think the best part is that some of the extraneous pictures, we can actually put all of them as supplementary material. Mm. Mm. So for some of them, we want it to be more tyrannosaurid focused, but for some of the non-tyrannosaurid theropods, that can be put in supplementary material, but that's something that's like, well, can I at least like maybe include one other theropod for a comparison? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just make it like interesting because bottom line, the whole thing is that like, it's not about like how cool tyrannosaurids are, but we're trying to also highlight the impressive feeding biomechanics and adaptations of other theropod dinosaurs mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And with your FEA, you've got basically 2D drawings, or not drawings, simulations of all these skulls, and then they're highlighted in different colors depending on the amount of stress. Those pictures are always so cool to see. It's like, you want all of them. I want to see all the dinosaurs. I want them in (laughs) detail. I want the different comparisons and all that stuff. Oh, definitely. Because when I was doing the thesis, I actually had like a large number of theropods, however. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that we had to pick a certain amount, however. So... For the dromaeosaurids, we didn't want to include like all dromaeosaurids because some of them were either not as complete or part of an ongoing study, however. And not to mention, we have to take a look at like how complete is this dromaeosaur compared to something like, say, Velociraptor or Deinonychus or something. Gotcha. Yeah. Because in order to do those force analyses, if you have only a partial skull, then there's big old asterisk after the assumption you made filling in the gap, right? <laughs> Oh, yes. Did you have enough, like, were there complete skulls for all the things you were trying to compare? Or did you have to do a lot of combining and sort of creative modeling? So for the 2D FEA modeling, there definitely was complete skull specimens. 
Now for some of the Tyrannosauroids, some of them were not really complete. They were missing some skeletal elements, but some of them were able to be filled in by other relatives, however, such as with Prostratosaurus, it was missing the top of its cranium, but it was able to be filled in with Guanlong, Prostratosaurus that was of similar body sizes too and morphology. Hmm. Cool. Which group, I mean, I assume Tyrannosauroids were your favorite, but did you have maybe a second favorite of the groups that you were studying? Oh, definitely. So for the Tyrannosauroids, that would be the Prostratosaurids because they're just so unique. However, it's like they don't even look anything like Tyrannosauroids. I mean, you definitely can say they do have the D-shaped teeth in cross-section and also how some anatomical features might unite them with Tyrannosaurids, but they're just very unique, however, and there's a lot more to discover with them. But looking at the non-Tyrannosaurid theropods, that would be the Abelisaurids. Mm -hmm. They have such unique cranial morphologies, but they're mostly just very short muzzles. I always call them the bulldogs of their opponent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Carnotaurus especially, I always think its head almost, depending on if its mouth is open and if they it's recreated with flesh, it either looks like a big like circle or a square to me. Is it even shorter than it is tall? I mean, like shorter front to back than oh, tall? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a good question. So when looking at the skull of Carnotaurus, it's mostly tall, however, but mm -hmm. it does have those horns, however. So oh. it kind of gives like a more tall appearance. Mm. But when you take a look at another South American abelisaurid, um, Scorpio Venator, it actually has a very, it lacks a lot of the cranial projections like horns, however. So it's just mostly flat, though. Interesting. Yeah, those are really cool. And I remember in your, your force analysis, and they come up in other force analyses too, like everybody talks about T-Rex being the strongest, but depending on what you mean by strongest, sometimes the Abelosaurids beat them out because they just have so much more, oh, yes. like more resistance to the torque on the front of the mouth. Oh, yes, definitely. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, if we were to scale every theropod at similar sizes, we do want to take a look more at their cranial morphologies. So if you have a very great style or slender snout, however, then it will probably snap or break because it's not really used to handling all those forces. But if you have something that is relatively deep, short, and compact, however, then you can handle it pretty well. And the thing is, is that I don't want to brag too much, but belly swords were kind of like the better models for that. Although Tyrannosauroids or Tyrannosaurids did it a little bit better, though. Mm. Yeah. And that's because or maybe partly because they, in real life, they weren't actually scaled to the same size, right? So a T-Rex was so much bigger and stronger than, you know, Carnotaurus was just overall. Right. Is all your stuff scaled like that, where you took all the things and scaled them to the same size, so you're comparing like details of the skull, or were you comparing overall strength? So what we did was that we scaled all of them to the exact length of an adult T-Rex, and we also gave them the forces equivalent to an adult T-Rex. So we wanted them mostly see how would each theropod that scale to the similar skull length of an adult T-Rex when given high forces. And we wanted to mostly take a look at the structural mechanics, however. Was that the, I can't remember where the bite was. Was it just at the tip of the mouth or did you have like a bite more in like the middle of the mouth that you're comparing? So there was a little bit of an issue with that. For some, it definitely was at the second most anterior tooth. But because these were scaled at similar lengths, sometimes we had to make sure like they were at very analogous points, however. Mm -hmm. So 
If it was like, say, at 800 millimeters, then it would be uterine tooth or at a gap between each tooth, however. But we will have to rectify that to make sure like, hey, let's make sure that they are all at the anterior tooth. But at the same time, it does offer a little bit of more interest in seeing like, well, we could also try to say like, we could also see how they would respond to certain forces at certain parts of the skull too. Mm. Or do like a, a toothless one and <laughs> just compare <laughs> yes. the, what that, what that's like. Yeah, definitely. Because I kind of feel like toothless theropods like the ornithomimosaurs are very unique, however, because they do lack teeth. But at the same time, they do have almost a very robust skull. One toothless theropod that I would like to try would be Dinochirus. Mm-hmm. It has something that's about the size of a T-Rex, but it has a very toothless skull however <laughs> just yeah. one of its many quirks and it, it's a theropod too right so it evolved from meat eaters so seeing like how its skull changed when it stopped eating meat presumably we don't think it ate meat anymore at least <laughs> oh yes i love datagyrus mm-hmm. <laughs> it is it is a very unique theropod and i would love to study more about like its cranial mechanics and feeding behavior too yeah datagyrus is so cool yeah. Do we have scans of Dinochirus or like replicas of it, or is it only the original over in Mongolia? That is a good question, however. So I do recall that there was a traveling exhibit in Japan where they did have like a cast of Dinochirus' skeleton, but I'm not too sure about like an actual 3D model that would be used for FVA too. So yeah. when it comes to 3D models, you actually have to like talk with people to see where if they have scans available and also understand where the references were. Sometimes you can have like a rather generic 3D model, but some of the cranial morphology and also anatomy might not be as accurate to say T-Rex, however. Gotcha. So it's that precision, how detailed they got in there with the fine tooth comb cleaning up every little <laughs> nook and cranny of the skull. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. Because that did happen with one of our Tyrannosaurid specimens, Teratophonius, where it was missing like a T-Rex palate. So we actually had to sculpt that in and also had to hollow out the nose. So you could say I had to give a Tyrannosaur a nose job. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Good as new. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Did the nose job change any results? Did you check? <laughs> no, but I will say that Teratophonius is definitely breathing a lot better now. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> awesome. So your work with all of these theropods, did that help in terms of, because now in your PhD program, you're focusing on spinosaurids, right? Yes. Are you expanding on your work from your master's thesis, or is this going to be something totally new? Actually, it's going to be a little bit of both. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my PhD, I still wanted to focus on theropods, but most of the time I I have kind of done a lot with Tyrannosaurus, and there definitely will be a lot more in the future. But I wanted to branch out to more underrepresented theropod taxa, however. At first, it was going to be a Bellisaurus, and the thing is that they are very unique. But when taking a look at the 2D models of our spinosaurus specimens, I noticed that, like, there is a lot of high stress, and I know these things are definitely not adapted for powerful biting, but I would like to maybe see what other feeding adaptations that they would have had, mm-hmm. and definitely can show that there is more spinosaurus material, especially with Suchomimus as well, however. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I would like to test would be to look at the range of motion. So at the Ross lab, Callum Ross specializes in FEA and also XROM. 
So with XROM, it usually involves embedding beads or electromyography into various muscles of an animal, such as a monitor lizard. And then we are able to use special x-rays to be able to understand how the muscles are working when the animal is feeding. So if I wanted to embed beads into the neck muscles of, let's say, birds or monitor lizards and understood how it was feeding, such as moving its neck forward and backward when going after prey, we can then be able to use that as a correlation to those aspinosaurs because they have very long necks mm-hmm. that would probably give it almost the appearance of a giant pelican or a giant swan in a way. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's really interesting. And another reason why I wanted to look at spinosaurus is because there's now a lot of research coming out too. Some mm-hmm. have focused on the swimming capability of spinosaurus, but mm-hmm. I do want to see more about like the actual feeding adaptations so we can understand to see more what their feeding behavior was like too. Yeah, because in terms of feeding, it's mostly there was that fish scale in a mouth and mm-hmm. then there's like a pterosaur bone. Yeah. I haven't seen much on like the bite power. A lot of people compare them to alligators and crocodiles, but alligators and crocodiles are very different, much more powerful, shorter skulls than something like Spinosaurus. Yeah, I'm really interested to see if they're as analogous as everybody sort of claims. (laughs) Yeah, so the thing is, is that I know there were a couple of studies by Emily Rayfield and colleagues, and they did take a look at crocodilians. So this included crocodiles and gharials because gharials have a very slender snout, but they are actually pretty good at biting. However, it's just that they're better going after softer prey, though. They Mm. wouldn't be going after like giant cattle. (laughs) And the thing is, is that Spinosaurids, they display very unique cranial morphology. So with Suchomimus and Baryonyx, they're mostly very flat. But when you take a look at Spinosaurus, so starting back from the snout to the back of the skull, you start to see this very large expansion. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes us think that, well, Spinosaurus was going after car-sized fish, however, too. So it probably would have needed like a very powerful skull and neck muscles to be able to do such powerful feeding, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's so skinny, that skull. It's like, how could it handle those thrashing fish with such a skinny skull? Well, it's kind of like this. You really need a very muscular neck to be able to do such feeding. Mm. The head is always good for like biting, but there's also other adaptations too. Spinosaurus have definitely long forelimbs or long arms. So they probably would have had a good range of motion, usually being able to bring prey closer to them. With Spinosaurus, they also have like fairly large teeth too, which almost remind me of, you know, something that might crush something more than just a real slender tooth that stabs through a fish. Have you ever looked at sort of, are you planning on looking at anything about the teeth? Yeah, so that's something I definitely would like to take a look at, would definitely be looking at the tooth morphology and being able to see like, okay, let's take a look at some of the bite marks, because you did mention that there was a pterosaur with a tooth bone embedded into it, so that was from an irritator. And so something that would be good would be to see if we can replicate that with Spinosaurus to be able to get more of an approximate bite force estimate too. But there is only one issue though. Some Spinosaurus skulls are not as complete because Irritator, it's missing the snout, but there is the back of the skull, though. But Mm. we do have others such as Suchomimus, Baryon. We can, of course, use those models to be able to see if we could replicate bite forces for them. Yeah. Seems like there's new Spinosaurs being discovered, too, recently. Yeah. Can add to that data. Oh, yes, definitely. Like, there were those two Spinosaurs that were found in the UK last year, too. Mm Mm-hmm. 
are those skulls complete enough to be useful for your kind of analysis? I feel like I remember them being pretty fragmentary. Unfortunately, no. Though they are very fragmentary, yes. But Spinosaurus, Baryonyx, and Zucamines would definitely be better models to use, however. And they all do show different cranial morphologies as well. But those, but those TUK ones, they would have been perfect, but uh, they're very fragmentary. Oh, well. Mm. Yeah. Yep. But maybe more will come out. Yeah. Hopefully. How many Spinosaurids do we know about? Ooh, that is a very that's a very good question though. So usually I like to go by different continents that have had Spinosaurus materials. So there's Baryonyx, Sucumimus, Spinosaurus, and Irritator. Irritator was found in South America or more specifically Brazil, but there is also another Spinosaur that was in Asia. So there's Ichthyophenator and there is another one, but I'm blanking on its name right now. I think it was Siamosaurus, but mm. that one's rather fragmentary. So Spinosaurids, they actually, we do have a fair number of them, but they are rather fragmentary, but there isn't as much skull material. Now for Ichthyophenator, there is postcranial material. So there is the cervical or neck vertebra and also tail vertebra where it has a very elongated caudal neural spine. So it would have had like a rather paddle-like tail and a rather concave or prominent dip in its sail too. Hmm. Hmm. So I guess I, I have one question about the shift from master's thesis to PhD program. Are you planning on, I know you did everything in 2D. Are you going to start doing anything in 3D for that fundamental element analysis? Yes, definitely. Also, I forgot to mention this, but it's actually finite element analysis, not fundamental element oh. analysis. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> no, don't worry. But yeah, so one thing I did mention in the thesis was that I would like to be able to test to see if there's a correlation between our 2D and 3D models. And this definitely does segue over to the Smithsonian Fellowship. So this summer, I recently applied and accepted a fellowship at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Awesome. And there... I am going to be getting the skulls of various theropod specimens that are on display and also in the uh, collections too. Oh, nice. so it'll tie into the PhD program. Yes. And one thing that we do want to be able to test is see if it's possible that the 3D models show similar stress magnitudes in areas of the cranium similar to our 2D models. Nice. Are these like things that haven't been scanned before that you're going to be going through? So I do recall that there was a 3D model of Ceratosaurus floating around on Sketchfab, but there's actually going to be a lot of 3D models that I do want to work on. So there's Ceratosaurus, Eoraptor, Allosaurus. I already have the nation's T-Rex, so it would be good to compare that with mm -hmm. other theropods. But Ceratosaurus, especially uh -huh. because I don't see as much FEA done on it, however. Gotcha. Are you calling it the nation's T-Rex now rather than Wankel Rex? Well, it depends. If I'm at DC, then I'll call it the nation's T-Rex. But if I'm at Montana, then I'll definitely call it the Wankel Rex. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a good call. <laughs> Although this one time when I was working with Eric, I definitely said like, you know, I think we should probably call the nation's T-Rex America's T-Rex because it had the second best bite forces behind Sue, however. <laughs> 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 That's true. <laughs> so um, kind of going back to your work in Chicago, I know you, you grew up in Chicago. You've worked a lot with the Field Museum. So how does it feel now that you're going to be doing your PhD at the University of Chicago so nearby? 
It's definitely going to be really good, though. I'm looking forward to continuing my work at the Field Museum and being able to use the museum collections and not to mention be correlating that with the with the biomechanics department and also with Dr. Serino and Dr. Ross at UChicago. Mm. Nice. Was the reason that you switched over to spinosaurids rather than abelosaurids based on the interests of at the University of Chicago? So there's a little bit of both, however. I know that Dr. Serino, he does have a lot of spinosaurid and abelosaurid material. And sometimes I probably could alternate between the two, but I do like a spinosaurus more because it still deals more with like anatomy, however. Mm. So with a bellysaurus, I would mostly be taking a look at the skulls, but I definitely want to expand more on my own anatomy training and understanding too. So being able to understand how neck morphology or neck adaptations can allow for some theropods to perform feeding behavior and also ranges of motion and how we can actually correlate that with whole body dynamics in other carnivores and other herbivorous animals too. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it all seems like very hot topics right now. Oh, definitely. I think one of the things that we want to understand with anatomy is do form and function have a correlation and what can this tell us about the evolutionary history of certain animals too? Mm-hmm. And and also how can we compare that with humans too? Yeah. Where do you start when you're talking about comparing a dinosaur bite to an herbivore bite or a, a human bite? So usually it's kind of like this. With humans, we normally just open and close our mouths. And when it comes to necks, we usually just like turn it from left to right and then up and down. However, when it comes to dinosaurs, they had very complex neck muscles where they would have had variable ranges of motion and also had had a higher limit too compared to humans. When it comes to bite force, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, we can only like abduct or open our mouths very, very low, however, but with dinosaurs, they can actually open their mouths very wide too. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to herbivores, they have very complex dental batteries. So they could either process tough plant vegetation or go after softer plants too. Gotcha. Is there any like specific thing that you'd want to compare if you could like compare anything between the the feeding behaviors? So one thing I probably would like to do, and this would be something that would go down in future work, would be taking a look at the ecology of herbivorous dinosaurs. So more specifically, those that are in North America and compare those with Asia. So in Dinosaur Provincial Park, you have a variable amount of ornithischian dinosaurs, such as ceratopsians and chylosaurids. Pachycephalosaurids and hadrosaurids, but in Mongolia and also in parts of China, you have mostly large herbivorous dinosaurs and also a lack of ceratopsians and also ankylosaurids and sauropods too. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes us think like, is this an environmental issue or is it more based on an anatomy issue too? Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because it could be like, oh, it's too hot for this type of animal, or it could be this type of animal doesn't have the bite force required to chew on the thing that grows around it. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. And it's kind of good to be able to understand what type of niche or environment some of these dinosaurs were better adapted for. And we can use that as a correlation for living animals, too. Hmm. With the living animals, you usually go with birds and crocodiles, I'm assuming, or have you found any other interesting things to compare with? So there are a couple of other different animals we can use for comparison. So we can look at monitor lizards and even mammalian carnivores, too, to see what types of 
environments they would have been best suited for, and also just getting an idea on what their ecology would have been like and seeing if we can compare that with dinosaurs and other extinct animals too. Cool. So is there any other upcoming work that you're excited about? I'm definitely excited about publishing the thesis chapters because I think they will offer a lot of insight onto theropod feeding behavior. Definitely something on the um, T-Rex ontology paper. And I am looking forward to my PhD research and being able to explore other theropods too. But the herbivorous dinosaur one is something that I would like to explore a little bit further down the road, especially when things about more like with ecology and also the anatomy and functional morphology of different dinosaurs too. Yeah. That all sounds really interesting. It's exciting. We'll have to have you come back a third time <laughs> when you finish some of that stuff. Definitely. <laughs> sounds Definitely. good. Definitely. <laughs> so for people who might not be as familiar with your work, where's the best place to follow you and, and find out more about you probably online? So that would be my Twitter. And my Twitter, I actually had to uh, change it uh, last year, but my Twitter name is at EJR underscore paleo underscore MSC. Mm-hmm. Although after I get my PhD, I'll probably have to change that to uh, <laughs> EJR paleo PhD or Dr. EJR paleo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but for now, this is good. We'll have a link to in our show notes. So easy yeah. to find. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to Evan for sharing all of his work with us. We're looking forward to hearing more about Spinosaurus biting abilities in the not-so-distant future. No pressure, Evan, but yeah, sooner rather than later. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're going to take a quick sponsor break, but when we get back, we'll get to our Dinosaur of the Day, UNESCO Ceratops. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, UNESCO Ceratops, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a Ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada. It looked kind of like Cetacosaurus. It walked on four legs. It had this short face with a beak and it had quills or maybe feathers on the tail. Mm, It is very much like Cetacosaurus. Yeah. It was small. It was estimated to be three to six and a half feet or one to two meters long and weighed 200 pounds or 97 kilograms. It was an herbivore. It probably ate low vegetation, food that was no more than three feet or one meter high. UNESCO Ceratops had round teeth and a parrot-like beak and a hatchet-shaped jaw. It also had a short frill, but there was no ornamentation on its skull. The type species is UNESCO Ceratops copulhuse. The fossil was found in 1995, and the holotype is a partial left lower jaw. It was found at a UNESCO World Heritage Site, Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is how it's got its name, and there's a referred specimen that's a partial right lower jaw fragment. UNESCO Ceratops was thought to be too incomplete to describe for a few years, and it was thought to belong to Leptoceratops, the bones were. Ryan and Curry actually first reported on the fossils back in 1998 and referred to it as Leptoceratops sp. Meaning they didn't know which species of Leptoceratops it went with? Yeah. Turned out not to be a Leptoceratops at all. No, it was UNESCO Ceratops. (laughs) And it was described in 2012 by Michael Ryan and others, and found to be one of the most advanced leptoceratopsids. The genus name means UNESCO ceratopsian, or UNESCO's horned face. And it's in honor of UNESCO's efforts to increase our understanding of natural history sites. And the species name is in honor of Ava Kopelhus. And if that name sounds familiar, she is a well-known paleobotanist, and she also often works with her husband, Phil Curry. Yep, we've seen them on a couple of digs together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about paleontology couple goals. <laughs> <laughs> UNESCO ceratops had the same number of tooth sockets as the holotype of Juchung ceratops. In 2013, Jordan Mallon and others looked at how herbivorous dinosaurs in Dinosaur Park Formation ate, or fed, and they found that most species ate food about three feet or one meters off from the ground, no matter how much they weighed. Huh. Interesting. There must have been a lot of good food at that height. I guess so. Now, UNESCO ceratops probably couldn't reach above 1.6 feet or 0.5 meters while it was on all fours, but it could rear up to one meter or three feet, similar to other small ornithischians in the area. So it had some options. Other types of dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as UNESCO ceratops included ankylosaurs, hadrosaurs and theropods, and other animals that lived around the same time and place included amphibians, crocodilians, lizards, fish, plesiosaurs, and mammals. And our fun fact is that there are up to 15 known types of spinosaurids. That's a lot for a group that we really don't know all that much about. I know. After we talked to Evan, I looked up how many known spinosaurids there are, at least as of this recording. Which is recorded a little bit in advance because of the whole paternity leave situation. 
and maternity leave situation. Parental leave, yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong P type of leave. (laughs) And we say this because there's been a lot of news around Spinosaurus coming out lately, so. There's a decent chance there's been another one or two, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now it turns out there's up to 15 known genera. That number varies a little bit depending on how you're classifying them, and some of the specimens are very fragmentary. Spinosaurids have been found in Africa, Europe, South America, and Asia, so they're pretty spread out, and they mostly lived in the early to mid-Cretaceous. All right, Garrett, I'm going to quiz you. Mm -hmm. How many of the 15 Spinosaurids do you think you can name? How many do I think I can name? Yeah. Probably like seven. Okay, tell me what (laughs) what you think they are. Okay. Well, I'll name as many as I can. So there's there's Spinosaurus mm-hmm. and Baryonyx, the, yep. like the two original ones. There's Suchomimus. Yep. There's Ceratosuchops, was one of the new Ooh, ones. Good memory. Um. Oh no. You got four. <laughs> <laughs> what else is there? There's some that are uh, kind of related to Spinosaurus. Is it like Sigilmosaurus, yes. one of them. Yep. That's five. There's a kind of more crocodilian sounding one, if that sounds familiar. Did I already say Suchomimus? Oh, yes. You did already say Suchomimus. I just forgot. So I'm I'm at five? You're at five. Yep. There's the one that annoyed the paleontologist. Irritator? Yeah. I don't know. That that might be all of the ones. I think I'm just going to be one short, (laughs) but really too short without your help. (laughs) That's pretty good. So some of the other ones include Angaturama. That does not sound familiar. Yeah, me either. It might be synonymous with Irritator. Camariasaurus. Oh, that's a pretty new one. Should have known that one. <laughs> Christastusaurus. Don't know that one. Iberospinus. Oh, yeah. One of the newer sounding ones. Ichthyovenador. Oh, I should have known that one. That was like a, a very good description of what a Spinosaurid is. Seizing fish. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the main thing we think they did. Oxalia. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Reparo Venador. Sounds familiar, but I, I don't know much about it. It probably sounds familiar because it was named in 2021, so we definitely <laughs> covered it on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Siamosaurus. From China, I assume. No, from Thailand. Oh, weird. Well, no. Thailand used to be known as Siam. Oh, I'm thinking of Sino. Mm. It's not Sinosaurus, Siamosaurus. Yes. Sucosaurus. <laughs> I do not know that one. Sounds fitting, though. I mean, it sounds a lot like Suchomimus. Yeah, crocodile, dinosaur, in other words. Yeah. And Vaibonaventrix. That one's got the, the award for the most syllables of a Spinosaurus. <laughs> oh, yeah. And most letters, most different types of letters. I don't know. I'm looking at the V's and the X's. <laughs> oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. This is a little unusual. Well, the good news is between the Dinosaur of the Day segments and the news, we've covered most of these dinosaurs. But you know we've talked about a lot of dinosaurs when we forget about some of the dinosaurs we've covered. It's hard. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed I couldn't even get half of them, but oh You well. did good. That's better than I would have gotten. It. I had to look all these up. I got the good ones. Yeah. I feel like Suchomimus, Spinosaurus, and Baryonyx are the real winners in the list. Yeah. The rest of them are They're the most well-known, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. 
If you'd like to request one of the Spinosaurids that we haven't covered, you can do that on our Discord server if you're a patron. And so just go over to the Discord server in the dinosaur request section. Tell us which one we should cover. And we'll get to it when we get back from our parental leave. And that's it for this episode. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.